The Parsha of Shoftim is the classic source of the three types of leadership in Judaism. They were called by the sages the three crowns, priesthood, kingship, and Torah. And this is the first statement in history of the principles set out in the 18th century by Montesquieu in L'Esprit de de Lois, and later made fundamental to the American Constitution of the separation of powers. Power in the human arena is to be divided and distributed, not concentrated in one person or office. So in biblical Israel there were kings, priests, and prophets. Kings had secular or governmental power. Priests were the leaders in the religious domain, presiding over the service in the temple and many other rites and giving rulings on matters to do with holiness and purity. Prophets were mandated by God to be critical of the corruptions of power and to recall the people to their religious vocation whenever they drifted from it. Our Parsha deals with all three roles. Undoubtedly, though, the most attention-catching is the section on kings for many reasons. First, it's the only command in the whole Torah to carry with it the explanation that this is what other people do. It says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and you've taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Asima alai melech, let us set a, a king over us like all the nations, like all the nations around us. Now, normally in the Torah, the Israelites are commanded to be different. The fact that this command is an exception is enough to signal to the commentators throughout the ages that this is certain ambivalence about the idea of monarchy altogether. Secondly, the passage is strikingly negative. It tells us what a king must not do rather than what he should do. He shouldn't acquire great numbers of horses or take many wives or accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. These are the temptations of power. And as we know from the rest of Tanakh, even the greatest, King Solomon himself, was vulnerable to them. Third, consistent with a fundamental Judaic idea that leadership is service, not dominion or power or status or superiority, the king is commanded to be humble. He must constantly read the Torah so that, in the words of the Torah itself, he may learn to revere the Lord his God and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. It's not easy to be humble when everyone is bowing down before you and when you have the power of life and death over your subjects, but it is absolutely necessary. Hence, the extreme variation among the commentators as to whether monarchy is a good institution or a dangerous one. Maimonides holds that the appointment of a king is an obligation, a mitzvah, a chovah. Ibn Ezra says it's a permission. Abar Banel says it's a concession. And Rabbeinu Bachia that it's a punishment, an interpretation known as it happens to John Milton at one of the most anti-monarchical periods of English history. There is that one positive and exceptionally important dimension of royalty. The king is commanded to study constantly. The Torah says he has to write his own copy of a Sefer Torah, and then it says it's to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and so on. Later, in the book that bears his name, Moses' successor, Joshua, 
is commanded in very similar terms. Keep this book of the law always on your lips, says God. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. In other words, leaders learn. That is the principle at stake here. Yes, they have advisors, elders, counsellors, and in a court of sages and literati. And yes, biblical kings had prophets, Samuel to Saul, Nathan to David, Isaiah to Hezekiah, and so on, to bring them the word of the Lord. But those on whom the destiny of the nation turns may not delegate away the task of thinking, reading, studying, and remembering. They are not entitled to say, I have uh, affairs of state to worry about. I have no time for books. Leaders must be scholars. B'nai Torah, children of the book, if they are to direct and lead the people of the book. The great statesmen of modern times understood this, at least in secular terms. Gladstone, four times Prime Minister of Britain in the 19th century, had a library of 32,000 books. We know, because he made a note in his diary every time he finished reading a book, that he read 22,000 of them. Assuming that he did so over a course of 80 years, he lived to be 88, that meant he read on average 275 books a year, or more than five each week for a lifetime. Visit David Ben-Gurion's house in Tel Aviv. And you'll see that while the ground floor is spartan to the point of austerity, the first floor is a single, vast library of papers, periodicals, and 20,000 books. He had another 4,000 or so in Stebokir. Like Gladstone, Ben-Gurion was a voracious reader and a prolific author. Benjamin Disraeli was a best-selling novelist before he entered politics. Winston Churchill wrote almost 50 books and won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Reading and writing are what separate the statesman from the mere politician. Few political leaders nowadays are scholars of this order, although Barack Obama did edit the Harvard Law Review and wrote a best-selling autobiography, Dreams from My Father, before becoming President of the United States. The two greatest kings of early Israel, David and Solomon, were both authors. David of Psalms and Solomon, according to tradition of Shi'ar Shirim, the Song of Songs, Mishlei, the Book of Proverbs, and Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. The key biblical word associated with the king is chokhmah, wisdom. Solomon, in particular, was known for his wisdom. The Torah says, when all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, that's in the famous case of the of the two um, wives, each claiming to be the mother of the, of the baby, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Uh, and, of course, famously, the Torah tells, Tanakh tells us that the queen of Sheba came and saw the wisdom of Solomon and was overwhelmed. We should note that chokhmah, wisdom, means something slightly different from Torah, which is more commonly associated with priests and prophets than kings. Chokhmah includes worldly wisdom, which is a human human universal rather than a special heritage of Jews and Judaism. A midrash says that if someone says to you there's wisdom among the nations of the world, believe it. If they say there is Torah among the nations of the world, 
don't believe it. Broadly speaking, in contemporary terms, Chochmah refers to the sciences and the humanities, whatever allows us to see the universe as the work of God and the human person as the image of God. Torah, on the other hand, is the specific moral and spiritual heritage of Israel. The case of Solomon is particularly poignant because, for all his wisdom, he wasn't able to avoid the three temptations set out in our parsha. He did acquire great numbers of horses, he did take many wives, and he did accumulate great wealth. Wisdom, without Torah, is not enough to save a leader from the corruptions of power. Though few of us are destined to become kings, presidents, or prime ministers, there is a general principle at stake nonetheless. Leaders learn. They read. They study. They take time to familiarize themselves with the world of ideas. Only thus do they gain the perspective to be able to see further and clearer than others. To be a Jewish leader means spending time studying both Torah and Chochmah. Chochmah to understand the world as it is, and Torah to understand the world as it ought to be. Leaders must never stop learning. That is how they grow and teach each others to grow with them.